1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is where we're going to be tonight. And Lord willing, we're actually going to finish up 1 Thessalonians. And then next week we'll pick up and begin with 2 Thessalonians. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, last week we looked at verses 16 through 18. And we talked about God's marching orders for, uh, excuse me, standing orders for God's army is what we entitled it. And Paul now turns from talking about what the Thessalonians and we also as Christians should be doing in verses 16 to 18. And he turns to uh, what some things that we should avoid. And specifically, he moves into how we should respond to the Holy Spirit's moving in our worship service. And then, and then he talks about the faithfulness of God and how uh, his faithfulness is what's going to carry us through. So that's what we're going to look at tonight. So let's read together 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to read verses 19 through 22. This is a lot like last week in that 16 through 18 uh, was three verses, but it was very short. And the same thing here, verses 19 through 22 are also very short, even though it's three verses. This is what he writes. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. So Paul here, last week he talked about how we should act, that we should rejoice always, we should continually be in prayer, uh, we should be thankful for in every circumstance. And now he says, uh, here's what you don't want to do. Don't stifle the Holy Spirit. Now to stifle uh, the Holy Spirit would be to forbid or to restrain his work. And so Paul is, is telling the church here to avoid any activity that would thwart the Spirit's work. So what was probably happening? Paul was probably uh, referring to a situation in the church in which some of the believers had been had been limiting or forbidding the exercise of certain gifts, such as prophecy, and uh, certainly uh, uh, specifically prophecy here. And and so Paul warned that no one should ignore or or toss aside the gifts of the uh, that the Holy Spirit gives. Now, I want to talk a little about this a little bit because sometimes what happens is uh, the immature use of spiritual gifts can cause division in a church. Um, there, there's, a, <clears throat> the, there's a story that I heard a, years, a number of years ago about a lady who stood up in, a, in church service one day and she had a quote unquote word from the Lord. Because, and the truth was, she had a word from the Lord because she was angry with the pastor about a decision that had been made and so she stood up in the, in, in, during the worship service and, and she was in, in her this word that she was, gonna, she was trying to refer to the story in 1 Samuel when, where Phineas uh, uh, named her son Ichabod, which Ichabod is just means the glory has departed. And, and it was in response to the moment when the Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant. And so that in that sense, because the Ark of the Covenant was gone from Israel, they, 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 named, uh, they named their son Ichabod because it means the glory had departed and meaning that the glory of the Lord and the ark had departed. But anyway, this lady was trying to refer to that story and, uh, and she stood up and she said, Thus saith the Lord, I have written Michelob over the door. And, and so, you know, and obviously it was not a word from the Lord and she got her, got her whole thing wrong. But, and so sometimes there's an immaturity that is, that is, uh, in, in, in there, our immaturity. It's a temptation to quote unquote use spiritual gifts to spiritualize matters that are important to us. And I've seen this happen a lot of times where people use it, 
Uh, and I've, I've heard it described like this, that the, that, uh, the gifts of the Spirit in a Pentecostal church, if we're not careful, uh, they can be, they be, can be used as a control mechanism that people use to get whatever they want, to try to control and manipulate the, the, the congregation and the people in the congregation. For example, I'll give you a, a made up example that's just kind of silly, but for example, you just imagine that some hypothetical church is going to install new carpet and they're trying to decide what color the car of carpet they should get, which we all know that's a very dangerous place in a church to try to get everybody to agree on anything anyway, but the color of the carpet. And so suddenly in a worship service the next Sunday morning, good old sister Farkle stands up with a word of prophecy and she says, thus saith the Lord, red, red, red for the blood of Jesus. Well, at that moment, suddenly brother better than thou, he's sitting in his pew and he realizes that fish, sister Farkle got the spiritual drop on it. And so he now has to play some catch up. So he stands up and says, I had a dream. I had a dream from the Lord and I saw purple, purple for the royalty of Jesus. And now Sister Farkle, she's not going to let him get away with that. And so she said, well, I also had a vision, red, red, red for the blood of Jesus. And, and, and that's silliness. But really often what happens when people begin to abuse these things, it is silliness. And, and, and often, though, it's, it's not something as inconsequential as the color of the carpet, as if God cares what color carpet we have in the church, you know. Um, but but uh, it, it, sometimes it gets, it's a much more serious situation. But the reality is, none of those were actually words from the Lord, which I just want to add this. Anytime we say, uh, we need to be very careful about saying, I have a word from God. Uh, because if I'm going to speak for God, I better be very, very certain that it's really God. You know what I'm saying? Because I'm going to stand before him one day and, and I don't want him to look at me and say, hey, I remember when you said that thus saith the Lord, I want you to know the Lord saith not <laughs> that. And, you know, I'm, and so we got to be careful with that. But uh, but what happens is people hide behind spiritual gifts in order to get what they what they want. Now, sometimes I think they even believe that they're hearing from God, but but they're not. Um, and, 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 and so <clears throat> what they're really doing in those kind of situations, and maybe this is sort of what was happening, I don't know, and it, we don't really know everything, the details of what was happening in Thessalonica, but maybe, but what, the, what they're doing in those situations is they're, they're sort of pulling out their trump card and they're laying it down and saying, there, top that. Because it is a, such a powerful tool for manipulation because as a human being, you can argue with me, but you can't argue with God. See, and so if, if somebody says, God says this, and then I say, well, I don't think we should do that. Are you going to, you, you going to disobey God? Well, you know, and so it becomes a tool for manipulation. And, and in that case, it's not really immature use. It's really a flat out abuse of spiritual gifts given by the Holy Spirit. And they're not really spiritual gifts. They're, it's manipulation disguised as the gifts of the Spirit. But the truth is, and this is what we have to understand, even when it's real and when, even when there's sincerity, it's messy and will always be messy when people are learning to move in the gifts of the Spirit because 
those people are still human. And how many of you realize that humans still make mistakes? Let me take a little survey here. How many of you are still human? Okay, yeah, okay, every hand's up. That's good. I'm glad we have no aliens among us tonight. No X-Files going here tonight. Now, how many of you still make mistakes? Yeah, and the hands went up even faster than the human, which I don't know what that says. I don't know what that really means. But, but yeah, humans are going to make mistakes. And sometimes in our zeal, we will try to do something and we'll overstep and we get ahead of God or whatever it might be. And, and, but it's in those moments then that the pastor or somebody else, whoever it might be in leadership at that time, maybe even a, a mature friend, somebody who's mature in the Lord has to step in and they have to lovingly correct the person and say, hey, listen, I, I love your heart. Uh, but uh, but but listen, I, I don't this is we, we know this is not God. And here's why. And I want to I don't want to discourage you. I want you to keep pressing forward to, to move forward in the gifts of the spirit. But and, and listen, those moments are not fun. Uh, but it's a healthy process to do that. Now, I will say this, when that happens, the person has to be willing to receive the correction or, you know, it's, and, and, and even if they're not willing to receive, the correction has to come. But, uh, but what was happening here was rather than trying to solve the problems, because when the gifts of the Spirit are in operation, you're going to, like I said, you're going to have mistakes, you're going to have humanity involved, you're going to have problems at, from time to time in that situation. But rather than trying to solve the problems, these believers in Thessalonica apparently had been attempting to stifle all the gifts. They're just saying, hey, you know what? This is causing too much trouble. So everybody just keep your mouth shut. Don't, don't do this anymore. And uh, it, 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 because it's a lot easier to prevent somebody from speaking than it is to evaluate what he or she has said. It's a lot easier to make, to tell people, hey, I don't want you to speak than it is to try to determine after they speak, was this really God or not? But stifling the work of the Holy Spirit does not solve any problems at all in the church. All it does is it impoverishes the church. So no one should stifle the Holy Spirit's work in anyone's life. In fact, Paul says that we should desire the gifts of the Spirit and particularly uh, he said that we should all aspire to prophecy. 1 Corinthians 14, 1. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. 1 Corinthians 14, 5. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues. Right there, he's saying, hey, you know, these other gifts, he wants them for us. But I would rather have you prophesy. He who prophesies is greater than the one who, than, than one who speaks in tongues unless he interprets so that the church may be edified. So the gift of prophecy is highly regarded, is highly esteemed in scripture and all Christians should be encouraged to, to uh, the full expression of the gifts of the spirit to the benefit of the whole body of Christ. And so Paul says here, he says, when it comes to prophecy, I want you to prophesy, but he tells the church, don't treat prophecies with contempt. Now, if we're going to deal with this, I think we have to spend some time talking about what is prophecy all about? What is the gift of prophecy? And what Paul means here by prophecy is not clear. He doesn't give us a definition here in Thessalonians, but the closest he comes to defining it is in 1 Corinthians 14, where if we pull it all together, I'm not going to read everything out of that. You can go through 1 Corinthians 14 on your own, but, uh, but it seems that prophecy consists of spontaneous, spirit-inspired 
intelligible messages orally delivered in the gathered assembly intended for the edification, comfort, and encouragement of the people. I think that's a pretty well summed up uh, description of prophecy. Now, here's the thing. When we talk about prophecy, most people, when we think about prophecy or we think about, talk about prophecy, we think about prophecies fulfilled, that sort of thing. So what we tend to think of when we talk about prophecy, when you hear the word, we tend to think of foretelling the future. We, that's what most people associate with prophecy. Now, I'll say this. Prophecy, at times, does include foretelling the future, but that's not all that prophecy is. Particularly, and I started to say particularly in the New Testament, that's not true either, because, because even when you go into the Old Testament, uh, you may not know this, but more than two-thirds of all prophetic activity in the Bible is foretelling, not foretelling. So prophecy is merely the, the moment when a person has a word from God, some sort of message from God, something that he wants to convey, and they speak forth what God has told them to speak forth. That is prophecy. Now, at times, you can read through the Bible, and you can see it. At times, the message that God was conveying was about something that was going to happen in the future. But two-thirds of the time, it was a prophecy, like if you read through the prophets, the major and the minor prophets, and by the way, they're, they're not called minor prophets because they're less important. It's because they're smaller books. That's the only reason. Uh, but when you read through the Old Testament prophets, you'll discover that, yes, there were times uh, like, like Isaiah when he said, for unto us a child will be born. And he tells us this future th event that's going to happen. But two-thirds of the time, what's happening is, God is saying, say this to this group of people, you know, say this to the Egyptians. And he goes through and a lot of times it's even a message about judgment, you know, but but so and so most of it was just it's just conveying the message God wants to communicate. And sometimes it includes telling foretelling the future, telling event that's going to come. And sometimes uh, but most of the time it's just God has a word for us. This is what happens you know, in the church, in a Pentecostal church, when someone, okay, we, we've probably all been there in a, in a church setting where someone gives a, uh, what we would call a message in tongues and interpretation. And that's just, um, and I'm not going to get into this. I've taught on the gifts of the Spirit before. I'm not going to get into all of this, but, but that's, you know, what we talk about. But what happens with a prophecy, it's actually very similar to that interpretation, but it's, there's no gift of tongues beforehand. And just, it's just God speaking through somebody and, and giving a message for that church, for the benefit of the church, for that moment, for where they are, for whatever is happening in their life. So prophecy is not just foretelling the future. Prophecy is foretelling something that God is trying to convey to a specific group of human beings. Now, what we can deduce from elsewhere in Paul's writings is that such utterances were not given the same weight and authority of Scripture, and they were not given the same weight and authority of the words of Jesus. And that's still true for us today. When someone says, hey, uh, you know, when somebody in a service stands up, and they might start with, you know, especially if they've been in a Pentecostal church for a long time, uh, because there's certain things that get ingrained into us. Uh, see, here's what I believe about the Holy Spirit, is that He comes through you as you. And uh, he doesn't change your personality. 
But then all of a sudden somebody will get up and they'll start giving a prophecy and they'll say, start by saying, thus saith the Lord. It's like, okay, why are they speaking old English, you know? Uh, and they'll speak King James English after that. And it's like, why, why are they doing that? Well, it's most of the time it's because they grew up in a church that had King James uh, uh, scripture that they were reading. And, and so as they were, you know, that is who they are. That's, that's part of who they are. And so it comes out that way. But then you'll, you might see somebody who's younger, maybe somebody who wasn't, didn't grow up in church and they might say something uh, different. They might start off by saying, it, it could even be something like, it, they might even introduce it by saying, thus saith the Lord, or God says, or anything like that. They just might start off by just simply saying, I see where you are, you know, if this is the message, for example, this is not a prophecy, don't, don't misunderstand me, but I see you where you are, my hand is upon you, I have great things in store, and, and so, but it's, but it's something where it's a message of God speaking directly to the people. Um, but whenever that happens, it is not anywhere close to the same authority as Scripture. Scripture is something that is different. In fact, we're going to talk about it in a moment, that it's the baseline by which we judge all the other prophecies. Um, and so, and, and on top of that, added to that, the purpose of exercising the gift of prophecy was meant to build up the community. When, when a prophecy is given, it is for the whole church. Now, there may be some very personal applications for you in your life, but it's really for everybody in the church. It's to build up the whole community of faith, and it's not meant to establish any one person as the authoritative mouthpiece of God. So it's not meant to, to raise up or to magnify any individual. It's not meant to make them look good or make them uh, as, you know, as if, because sometimes we look at somebody who's using the gifts and we, we're like, oh, they're just up here. No, no, no. They're just like you. They're just like you. They're just, they're just had faith to be used by God. You can read 1 Corinthians 12 about the gifts of the spirit. And it talks about how the spirit uses whomever he wills. And it's all about us having faith to respond. In other words, uh, and I didn't mean to get into all this stuff tonight. In other words, for example, say some, God uses you with the gift of healing one day that he gives you that gift and you pray and somebody is healed. That does not mean you have the gift of healing because the truth is what the way, this is how I read first Corinthians 12. The church has all the gifts of the spirit and the, and the Holy spirit can choose to use any individual in the church in any one of the gifts at any time he chooses. And so it's not that you had the, the gifts, a gift of healing. It's that God used you in the gift of healing. Here's part of the problem with, with approaching it that way and saying, well, I have the gift of healing. Well, first of all, you might run into some pride issues, you know, because you start feeling pretty good about yourself. The second thing is, and this is, this is very devastating, is that you think, oh, well, I have the gift of healing. So I guess I'm not going to be, you know, used with uh, the gift of uh, faith or the gift of uh, prophecy or any of these other things. And, you, and you, you kind of shut the door on what God can do by saying, well, I've got this gift. No, no. See, if we understand that he's given all these gifts to the church and that the Spirit uses whomever he wants to, whenever he wants to, then if I realize that, I can be out on the street somewhere 
and and I and God gives me you know uh, uh, and uh, he nudges me and I begin to realize hey I want you to go pray for this guy over here who's who's limping along and he uses me in the gift of healing out there but at the same time he could use me in a whole different gift in a different situation and so I just have to be aware of that and and the whole point is not to raise anybody up anytime anytime I'll, I'll just say this anytime you see somebody who uses the gifts of the spirit prophecy whatever it might be and they make a big show about themselves you need to be really really careful in that situation in fact i would run because because the holy spirit only points to one person and it ain't me it's jesus but anyway the, the Thessalonians were apparently treating some prophecies, maybe they were warnings and corrections that they didn't want to hear, but they were apparently treating some prophecies with contempt. We have to understand that when a prophecy is coming forth, it is a holy moment when God is speaking to his people. And I have to treat it like that. Even if the person, even if I later determine this person, you know, was not moving in the spirit, I have to, I have to be take it seriously. And I have to, I have to listen and, and treat it like a holy moment that God is speaking to us. And, and, and the, the words spoken, therefore, should not be treated contemptuously. Now, with that said, Paul is not advocating blind acceptance of every word spoken in the name of Jesus by some, by any self-styled prophet. We know that because of what we read in verse 21. He said, test everything. Hold on to the good. Test everything. Hold on to the good. So he said, don't treat him with contempt. Listen to him very carefully. Take it this, the moment seriously. But he said, but test it. Test it and hold on to good. So believers are to test everything to discern whether, whether or not this is really a word from God. And, and after we put the word to the test, then we're able to, and we're able to discern what is true and what is false. Then we hold on to what is good and we reject what is false. Now, the word translated good, where he says, test everything, hold on to the good. The word translated good was a word that was sometimes used to describe something genuine. Uh, for example, uh, a genuine coin as opposed to a counterfeit, counterfeit. So what he's saying here is test it. And hold on to anything that is real, but if you find out it's a counterfeit, you can you, you, you can get rid of that, okay? So all believers are responsible to listen, to discern the, the truth of what is being said, and then to learn from it. Now, I have to say, if there is an aspect of the modern day practice of prophecy that needs to be emphasized, it is this, and I believe this. You can disagree with me if you want. This is what I believe. But I believe we must do a better job at testing to see whether or not what has just been uttered should be accepted as good or should be rejected. Um, too often, I see, and, I, and it just seems like it's worse nowadays because of the, the prevalence of, of social media and, you know, and, and there's so much teaching and preaching out there and there's some great preaching and teaching out there but there's also some really bad teaching out there. And so it, we have access to a lot more, but, but I, too often I see Christians buying into 
bizarre spiritual teachings and ideas, and sometimes even human-centered. I'm just going to say this one. This is one of my pet peeves. And if you've ever posted this, I don't know of anybody here that did, so this is not personal. But I've seen these a lot of times where I see something on, on Facebook or whatever, some meme, and somebody says, uh, you know, if you're having a hard time, just remember this. You are enough. Well, no, I'm not. That's, that's not biblical. Jesus is enough. That's what I got to remember. You know, and, and, but I see Christians buy into this and they say, they think this because it feels so good and it just seems so right. And, 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 uh, and, and we just tend to gravitate towards some new revelation or some sensational manifestation. And, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and often, oftentimes it's really because it just feels so good to us. But I don't care how good a word feels to you. You cannot judge any spiritual truth by how it makes you feel. All right? Now, discernment may make you feel uncomfortable at times when something wrong is being taught, but that's not determining it. Then you go to the scripture. So it may nudge you and it may cause you something, or even if it makes you feel good, you still need to go to the scripture to say, okay, this felt right, but I need to know for sure because my feelings do not determine whether something is true or false. In fact, did you know, I mean, that standard, if just by saying, man, I just, it just really bore witness with my spirit. We like to use phrases like that. You know, it just felt good. Well, you know what? That is the exact same standard applied by nearly every false religion and every cult that has ever existed. For example, the Mormons. We, we lived in Mormon country for a long time, ministered there. They will tell you, that you will know that Mormonism is true because if you read the Book of Mormon, you'll have a burning in your bosom is literally the phrase they use that bears witness to its veracity. It's exact same thing. They're saying, read it, it'll feel good to you. So now, listen, you can't apply that in the Christian realm and then say it's wrong in the, in the, in a, the realm of cults and, and uh, false religions, right? It has to be a, a far more solid foundation for determining the truth or the uh, falseness of a word of prophecy than simply how it makes us feel. Okay? So, so I'll just say this. When you read something on Facebook and somebody posts it, it may be something that you have a great deal of respect for. It, it, you may read that and say, oh, that just feels so good. But you need to ask the second question and you need to say, but is this really biblical? Is this really what the Bible says? Um, so, so the question is for us then, how are believers to test for truth and genuineness? How? Well, the number one way, most important way, is we always must check people's words against the Bible. Just as the Bereans did in Acts 17, 11. When Paul preached the gospel there, it says that they were more noble than the Thessalonians and that they went home and searched the scripture to see if what he said was so. The standard of truth is the word of God, period. Not how I feel. Not, not, you know, not if it was said by somebody I respect. It's the word of God. And that is because God will never reveal a truth that is contrary to what he has always revealed. 
because he is always perfectly consistent. Now, I'm not. Anybody here ever said one thing and did another? Yeah, yeah, me too. Everybody here has, but not God. What he has said in the past is what he has always said and what he will always say. He's always consistent. So that's our, our standard of truth. Now, here's the thing, though. Sometimes these prophecies deal with areas that maybe are not really something specifically addressed in Scripture. So how do we test those things? So I think there's some other tests that we apply uh, outside after we apply this, the Scripture test. Uh, here's some things to look at. You look at the, the life of the prophet. I think that's an important aspect of it. You look at them and you say, okay, what is their level of commitment to the body of believers? Are they, are, is it really about the church or is it about them? Because if it's about the church, okay, that's, that's a good sign. You, you, <clears throat> you look at their lifestyle. Because if they're not living a life that's pleasing to God, if they're not living a biblical life, if they're out there, you know, saying, hey, I have a word from the Lord, but they're living in, in blatant sin, that's, that's a red flag. I'm not going to listen. I'm not going to listen to that. God can, yeah, I know God can speak through a donkey. He did that in the Old Testament, but he can also speak to me through his word and through godly men and women. So I'm going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to trust somebody who lives that. Here's, here's a third way. Um, it, it, the, the validity of their message. Now, here's what I mean by that. There are times when Somebody will say, I have a word from the Lord, and they'll speak about something that is going to happen. All right? On, on something like that, I have to wait to see if it happens before I know whether that was lo the Lord or not. Okay? I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, before the last election, there were a number of so-called prophets in our nation who were saying Trump is going to be president again. He's not president. So now I can look back and say, those people were acting as false prophets. I can say that clearly. It's not a judgment. I'm not angry about it. It's just I can look at it and see they were not hearing from God. And there were a number of them that said that. And, and so if, if that's the case, then I can, I, I, if that's true, I want to say this too. If that's true about that one, I need to treat everything else they say very, very carefully. Because if they missed it there, and, and some of them still, and listen, some, I'll say this, I'll say this in fairness. Some of those people came back and said, hey, I missed God. But others of them doubled down and said, nope, 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 it was God, it was God. It's like, okay, those people, I'm, you know, I don't need to listen to that anymore. I'm done with them. So you, you look at the validity of the message. Uh, so on a personal level, somebody might, level, somebody might say, I, I have a word from the Lord. Next Tuesday, you're going to get a raise. And you're like, oh man, that's awesome. Praise the Lord. I hope that's true. And then you wait and then Tuesday rolls around. You don't get a, You don't get a raise. Well, that, that was not a word from the Lord. Now, what happens a lot of times you go back to them and say, hey, I didn't get the raise. I don't think that was God. They say, oh, well, you just didn't have enough faith. They'll, they'll throw it on you, you know, and, and just run from people like that. That's all I can say. And most importantly, most importantly, more than anything else other than the scripture itself. And that is you ask yourself, 
What do, does this person believe and teach about Christ? Are they honoring Christ? Are they honoring his lordship? Are they glorifying him? Or is it more about them and their ministry and what they're doing all over the world? Now, you know, we will be on dangerous ground if we scoff at a person who does speak the truth. So we need to carefully check out what people say. We need to listen carefully. Don't just assume that it's not God. Don't treat it with contempt. Hear the word, but then we have to test it. We've got to check it out and then accept what is true, reject what is false. And, and like I said, some of those things, you know, if they're talking about a future event, sometimes we just have to wait before we determine whether it's God or not. So, uh, however, we, we, should, we, we should never believe everything we read in here. Uh, unfortunately, there are a lot of things printed and taught in the today's world that are just not true, that are not biblical. Which, by the way, again, this gets to how important it is for you to be in the Word. Um, we, we have the church in America has a very high level of, of, uh, of illegitimacy. That's not the word I'm looking for. Illiteracy, that's the word. Illiteracy in Scripture. And if we don't know scripture, then we're going to be fooled easily. So get in the word. And I hope, I hope you're reading through the Bible this year with us. We're on, I, we started on January 1st, so we're on day 10 now. And, uh, and just by getting in, just read it every day. Just read it every day. Don't miss and, uh, and, and get it in you. Because what happens is sometimes, I felt a sneeze coming on. Sometimes, you know, as you get in the Word every day, somebody comes and this says something, you may not know where a verse is found or the Scripture reference, and you not, might not be able to quote it exactly, but the Holy Spirit will, will remind you of things, and they'll say something, and there's something in your heart that just says, that doesn't sound right. Something's not right there. That's when you can go back to Scripture, and you'll find it eventually. But... Without getting in the Word, you don't have that. Because the Holy Spirit can't bring back to your memory anything that you haven't put there. Right? So, we should have faith, but we should not be gullible. Verify every message you hear, even if the person who, who brings it says it's from God. And if the message is truly from God, it will be consistent with the Bible. It'll be consistent with Christ's teaching. And once a prophecy has been tested, the next step is relatively easy. Hold on to the good, reject what is bad. In verses 21 and 22, there's an interesting contest, contrast, I should say. He says, test everything, hold on to the good, avoid every kind of evil. Now, how? so we're to hold on to the good and we're to, at the same time, avoid every kind of evil. How in the world are, can we avoid every kind of evil? Are we supposed to withdraw from the world and become hermits and so that we won't come in contact with evil? No, I, I, Paul didn't mean that. I'm sure of that be, uh, because if we were to literally withdraw from the world, how in the world could we fulfill the command of Christ to take the gospel to the whole world? How could we, we be light, the light of Christ in the world uh, so that more and more could come to know him? So, this is not about withdrawing from the world and saying, well, I'm just going to make sure I don't come in contact with those dirty, rotten sinners over there. 
uh, Christians, we, we cannot avoid contact with every kind of evil uh, in the world because this world is ruled by the evil one. It's a broken world. Believers can, however, and this is what I think he's talking about here, we can make sure that we don't give evil a foothold in our own lives. By, and we can do that by avoiding tempting situations, you know, which, you know, sometimes it's obvious. Like the, the person, you know, who, um, who, who is a recovering alcoholic shouldn't start a bar ministry, right? I mean, you, you don't want to put yourself in a position where you're going you're gonna to struggle with that. So you avoid temptation and you let the Holy Spirit take up residence uh, in your life. And you, and you just don't let sin take up residence. You don't let it fester. You know, even little things, you've you got to deal with it. Keep ourselves clean before God. You know, don't say, well, that's just a little thing. I don't need to worry about that. When we sin, we need to do what 1 John 1, 9 says, we should confess our sin. Because if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's 1 John 1, 9. So, the, so we got to confess the sin before God, make sure that we don't allow that sin to fester inside of us. Don't allow it to get a foothold. Don't let the devil get a foothold in any way. All right, let's move on. Verses 23 through 24, he begins his conclusion of the letter. Uh, this is what he said. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. So he begins to close the letter by really praying a prayer over these this church. And uh, Paul knows that the conduct, conduct that he's been prescribing, the way of life that he's been talking about, he knows... It's impossible from a human standpoint. It's impossible for you as a human being. You will not naturally always be joyful, right? You're not naturally going to pray continuously. You're not naturally going to give thanks in every circumstance. Uh, and, and there's no way that you can, of your own self, in your own strength, stay keep away from all evil. However, Paul did not expect the Thessalonian believers to do this in their own strength, and he prayed for them that they would continue to know the presence of God himself. And he says uh, th that he was the God of peace who would sanctify them through and through. I want to talk about those two ideas, the God of peace and sanctify them. Paul described God as the God of peace, as he often did, especially at the end of his letters. You can look at Romans uh, 15, 33, Romans 16, 20, 2 Corinthians 13, 11, first, uh, excuse me, Philippians 4, 9, 2 Thessalonians 3, 16. Also, Jesus uh, had told his disciples before his death, John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. And then John 16, 33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So the end result of the Holy Spirit's work in a believer's life is a deep and lasting peace. He is a God of peace. Now, unlike worldly peace, worldly peace usually uh, is defined as the absence of conflict. You know, so if somebody says in the world, they say, I just want peace. They just mean, I don't want, I don't want to have this problem anymore. 
I don't want to have this issue. I don't want to have this contention. I don't want to have this division, whatever it is. But this peace that God gives is a peace. It's really a confident assurance in the midst of any circumstance. <coughs> Excuse me. It's knowing that in spite of the conflict, in spite of the problem, in spite of the issue, I have Jesus. He's going to see me through this. That's the peace that he's talking about. And with Christ, with his peace, no believer needs to fear the present or the future. I don't have to be afraid. No matter what happens. What did Jesus say? He said, don't fear the, those that can kill the body. Fear the one who, who can condemn the soul. So I don't have to be afraid of anybody or anything that they may do. You know, because even if they even if they say come up and say, hey, I'm going to kill you. You know, it's, uh, my reply is, too late. I already died in Christ. <laughs> I, died, I died to myself a long time ago. Go ahead. For me to die is gain. So we don't have to be afraid. And then he talks about sanctification. As God takes up residence within a believer, he begins a process of sanctification. And that's the change that he makes in all believers' lives as they grow in faith. Now, sanctification, which is just a big word for holiness, uh, it, it really has three parts. There are three aspects of it. Number one, believers are sanctified by the, by the Holy Spirit when they believe. In, in other words, uh, th this word uh, holiness or sanctification it really speaks about something or someone being set apart for God's use. And the moment you put your faith in, in the Lord Jesus Christ, the moment that you're born again, you're instantly set apart for God. And God forgives you of your sin. He changes your nature. He adopts you as His child. And He clothes you in His righteousness. And we all know at that moment, He wipes away all sin so that you are clean before Him. You're considered holy because He gives you the righteousness of God in Christ. All right? That happens the moment you're saved. And how many of you know that even though that happens the moment you're saved, you still have to deal with sin in your life after that, right? So that means that, by the way, that first one is called positional sanctification. And that means that you have a new standing before God. You were once, you, you, you were before were an enemy of God. Now you're a child of God. You have a different standing, a different position before God. Your, your standing with God changed. And when that happened, so did the trajectory of your life. So not only is it that moment sanctification begins in that moment when we get saved, but it's also, this is the second part, it's also a process whereby believers dedicate them, themselves to proper living. So God makes me holy, the beginning part. The second part is throughout my lifetime, I become more like Christ. That's the process of learning how to live out what he did on the day I got saved. All right? So God does not sit you to uh, save you to sit and soak in your salvation. He saves you to go and live out your salvation. Uh, and, and that's why sanctification is not only positional, that is something in the past when God saved you, but it's also, this is what we call progressive sanctification. It's in the present as God is changing you. 
And God will untiringly chip away at our sin and our imperfections until we become more and more and more and more like Jesus himself. This is the process of being made more and more and more holy. So sanctification is the positional moment, but it's also this process of moving toward being like Christ, more Christ-like. Then the third part of it is, and this is, this is the, the great part, the ultimate goal of sanctification is our future glorification, where, where our bodies are glorified. What God did in the past at salvation and what He is doing now in our present transformation is all preparing us for our future with Him. So this is your future sanctification, the final sanctification, when your battle with sin will finally be over and you're not going to have to deal with temptation anymore. Won't that be wonderful? I can't wait for that. And we're going to be like Him forever. So this is, this is when you talk about sanctification, this is a weighted word, has a lot of depth to it uh, that Paul is talking about. In order to be sanctified through and through, as he said, then God will need to work in all areas of a person's life. And he says the whole spirit, soul, and body in the scripture. Now, I won't say this. I'll say this here, this. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of debate. Is man, body, soul, and spirit three parts? Or some people say, well, he's body. And then you have a soul slash spirit. That's the other part. And some people say, well, man's just one whole thing. Paul is not, I don't believe he's trying to make a statement about any of that in this situation. What he's really trying to say is that it's about the entire being of a person. This expression is Paul's way of saying that God must be involved in every aspect of my life. A person's spiritual life cannot be separated from everything else. Being a Christian was never meant to be a Sunday's only proposition. I've always described it like this. I've done this on Wednesday night in our studies before. You may remember this, but I feel like it's more like, you know, we, we do this thing where we say, well, you know, God, you're at the top. You're number one. But the problem with that is then once I finish with God that day, then I'm going to move on to my other stuff. But I, I feel like it's more like a bicycle wheel and that you have God in the center. You've got Christ in the middle. And then the spokes reach out to every other part of your life. And every other part of your life is connected to Him. That it's all, it's all about Him in everything. Faith should so permeate each believer's life that his or her whole being is coming more and more under God's loving control. And as believers walk with God, seeking daily to draw closer to God, then he will keep them blameless for Christ's return. And the, the conclusion, as we said, of, our, of the sanctification process is at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or it could be by way of death. You know, I'm going one of, one of two ways, either when Christ returns at the rapture or I'm going by the grave. One of those two ways, either way, my race is done and my sanctification is over. I'm finally, it's finally be fulfilled. And, and, and he will bring his people to complete perfection and take them with him to his kingdom. He said in verse 24, and this is so powerful, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Now, the tense of the verb here uh, calls, uh, is, is, it suggests that it's a, not a one-time calling, but that God is constantly calling out to his children. The, the call of God to himself. 
And that call is not something that we should take lightly, that he is constantly beckoning us. He's constantly calling us, saying, come closer, come closer. And we should not take that lightly. It's a very holy moment when we slow down enough and turn down the noise enough in our life to hear the voice of God calling us to draw, draw near to him. But Paul says that the one who calls you is faithful and he will sanctify you and pre- present you blameless at the return of Christ. So uh, with that last line, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Paul reminds us that in the overall scheme of things, the end of the story has less to do with our own efforts and more to do with God's faithfulness to us. It reminds me a lot of what Paul wrote to the Philippian church when he he wrote, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That is faithfulness. He says, he did it. He's going to finish it. That's the faithfulness of God. The the promise comes from God himself. And we can trust his promises because faithfulness is a characteristic of God. I printed off for you these sheets with a number. And this is not an exhaustive list, but a long list of of scriptures uh, that that all talk about the faithfulness of God and how it applies in different areas. And and I encourage you to take that. And when you're you're discouraged, when you're saying, man, I don't know if I'm going to make this. I'm struggling here today. Pull Pull that out and remind yourself, hey, wait a minute. The one who called me is going to be is faithful and he's going to do it and remind yourself of the faithfulness of God. And because God is faithful, then we can count on him to fulfill his promises to us. We, we are we are confident that in the future God will do for us what he has promised because of his, the faithfulness of his to his promises that he has already demonstrated in the past. Because he has been faithful for our, our whole life. That's why I love that song that we sing sometimes. All my life you have been faithful. Because he has been faithful, I know I can trust him. He's got a good track record. God created the world and he has faithfully ordered it and kept it. He holds it all together. And if God can oversee the forces of nature and hold it all together, then surely he can see his people through the trials they can, that, that, that they face. Let's, let's move on. I'm going to run out of time. Uh, verses 25 through 28, the final closing. He says, brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So let's look at each of these four things. First of all, we know Paul spent a lot of time in prayer for the believers in various churches. And he mentioned in this letter several times his own prayers for the Thessalonians. But what's striking here is that Paul also asked the believers to pray for him and for his fellow missionaries. He wasn't up there saying, hey, you know, I'm the apostle. I'm the big guy. I'm strong. I got this. You go. No, he was saying, listen, pray for me. I need your prayers. As much as you need my prayers, I need yours. Every believer, even this gifted apostle, needs the prayers of fellow believers. There's not one of us that can make it on our own. I don't care how long you've walked with Jesus. I don't care how much of the Bible you know. We need each other. We need each other. And I'm counting on your support and prayer, and you can count on mine. 
Then he says to greet all the brothers with a, with a holy kiss. Well, you know, I just want to say thank you for not taking this script, part of the scripture literally. Um, but to, to greet the, the, all the brothers with a holy kiss was, was, uh, was encouraged by Paul as a way to greet Christians, a way to break down the divisions in the church. Now, what, ha- what is happening here? Paul is merely communicating what was a culturally acceptable, acceptable way of expressing friendship. That was normal. And you go to a lot of Europe today, it's still the normal. You know, you'll go up to, they'll go up to a friend and they'll do the little two, two cheek kiss, that sort of thing. We don't do that in America, you know. <laughs> Part of it is, I think in America, we don't do it because we're not sure if we're supposed to go to the left first or right first and we're afraid we're going to, you know, bump, uh, bump noses or whatever. I don't know. Maybe it has nothing to do with it. But, uh, but kissing was a normal way of greeting each other in Paul's day. And Paul says here, he says, I want you to greet each other with a holy kiss. And that expressed love and unity among the believers. And so Paul wanted his readers to express their love and unity to one another. He says, don't just assume people know. Express your, your love and express the unity of the body, uh, of, the body of Christ. Uh, today... A handshake or a hug conveys the same warmth, genuous and genuous and respect in our culture. Uh, so, but but here's the thing: I think we need to take from this, and that is, Paul wanted them to do this openly, and and that tells me that we need to show the world that we love each other. Jesus said that this would be one way that the world will know that we belong to him, that we love one another. He said this: by this will all men know that you're my disciples, that you have love one for another. And listen, here's the truth. I believe this with my whole heart. Considering the varying backgrounds, personalities, and preferences of those within the body of Christ, it is a miracle that the church is able to accomplish anything. I really, it really is. Yet, through the power of His Spirit, God not only equips His people to do His work, but He also enables them to love one another while they do it. It's a beautiful thing. God expects his people to build close relationships that are marked by this mutual love and accountability. God did not establish the church to be a place. He established his church to be a people. That's why I've said, you've heard me say it multiple times, sometimes, usually on a Sunday morning where I'll say, uh, don't forget, you did not come to church today. The church came here. Because the church is not this place. This is just a building. You're the church. People are the church. Uh, He establishes church to be a people who love him and who love one another. So Paul's reminding us to express our love for one another visibly because the world will take notice when we do. Because listen, the truth is there is nothing like the church in this world when the church is working right. Nothing like it. He goes on and he commanded that the, the letter be read to everyone in the church. I'm not going to spend much time on this. Uh, just understand the literacy level was very low in Paul's day. But even if everyone had been able to read, there still wouldn't have been enough copies to circulate, circulate among the believers. It wasn't like today where you have all of Paul's letters all bound together with this nice leather bound copy. And, you know, they had one copy. And, and if they made copies, it was going to be by hand. And so what would they do? You know, they, they didn't have the New Testament the way we had it. It was, Paul was in the process, one of them that was writing it under the anointing and the, and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But what they did is they would take these letters 
And often what the sermon was when these letters would arrive would be they would be read, they would read the word out loud. And Paul wanted to make sure everyone had the opportunity to hear the message. And because he was answering some important questions and he was offering needed encouragement. So the emphasis was not merely on writing the letter. Paul wanted to make sure that people grew as a result of the letter. Then he closes with that line is so powerful. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So powerful. As Paul began the letter, so he ended it with the grace of Christ. Paul's final prayer for them was for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to be, be with them. Paul wanted his readers to continue to experience God's undeserved favor and kindness and love every day in their lives and, and then to pass along that grace to other people. I want to read this quote from James Denny. He wrote this, Whatever God has to say to us begins and ends with grace. All that God has been to man in Christ Jesus is summed up in it. All his gentleness and beauty, all his tenderness and patience, all of the, the holy passion of his love is gathered up in grace. What more could one soul wish for another uh, than, than that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with it? Our prayer for ourselves, our prayer for everybody that we know should be, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I'm going to conclude by giving you four takeaways from this passage and then we'll be done. Here's four things I think are really powerful that we need, we need to remember. Number one, God has taken a special interest in you. He's taken a special interest in you. He wants to, to change your life. He wants to build you into the image of Christ. His construction project on you begins the moment that he saves you. And it's, and it's more than just a little renovation project that's going to last for a few months. It's a transformation project that will last for a lifetime. He doesn't break for lunch. He doesn't take a vacation. He doesn't break his contract and he won't let you down. God uses only the finest materials and he never takes shortcuts. He promises to bring to completion the work that he began in you. The only thing that can stop it is you giving up. Number two, the time to get serious about your personal holiness is now. If God is committed to complete the good work that he, he began in you, then perhaps it's time for us to partner with him in the process. Number three, this is a really important one. Rem recognize, recognize that God is sanctifying other people as well. God is not only at work in our lives, He's also working in the lives of others. So when we are tempted to lose our cool because of their lack of progress, because of their immaturity, because of whatever, we would do well to remember that we are also works in progress. So when that person gets on your nerves and you're like, man, I wish they'd get their act together, just remember, somebody else is saying about you, man, I wish they'd get their act together. We're all in progress. God's not only sanctifying you, and you're not perfect, but he's also sanctifying other people. And yes, they're not perfect. And number four, nothing is, nothing is accidental and nothing is wasted. 
that last part, I, that's because I heard somebody say one time, they said, God never wastes a hurt. Hurts happen outside of his will, but he's not going to let that go without bringing some good, without growing you, without showing you more about himself. He's not going to waste it. Nothing is accidental. Nothing is wasted. God oversees the affairs of our lives, even to the smallest details. If, if he is at work in us, then we can also be confident that he is at work around us. And only God can take the thousands of seemingly insignificant details of our lives and weave them together to bring about our ultimate good. Only God can do that. And even when we can't see the good, we can still have peace, we can still take comfort because we know God is good. Amen? Amen. Bow your head, let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful. And Lord, we, we want to follow your word. We, we want to make sure that we don't, we don't stifle the fire of the Holy Spirit. We, we want to let the gifts of the Spirit flow. But God, we also, we also want to be wise. We, we, we want to have faith, but we, we don't want to be gullible. We, so teach us, God, and help us to get in your word. Help us to know your truth so that we can measure all of these words that other people may give. And Lord, we want to grow. We, I pray, Lord, you would use us in the gifts of the Spirit, and especially, as Paul said, in the gift of prophecy. We want to grow in these things. And God, I pray also that you would help us to remember your faithfulness. As we have talked about it tonight, you started this thing in us. You saved us. We didn't do anything. All we did was simply respond in faith. You did it, and you're still doing it. And God, you're the one that's going to see us through. And, and Lord, it's on that upon which we hang our hat. We pin all of our hopes, not on our ability to do the right thing, but on the, the reality that you are a faithful God and that as we continue to follow you and you sanctify us, as you walk us through that whole process of sanctification, that you're going to bring us to the end goal and you will finally fully sanctify every part of us because we'll be with you forever. And Lord, I pray you'd help us to walk in your grace. And remember your grace and be people of grace. And we pray all of it in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.